listen to us. Uh, what greater way to start any time than to see someone humbly submit themselves in a baptism? And Brother Zachary, we're we're grateful. We I think most all can certainly remember that day and time when we first obeyed the gospel, and it was a wonderful and a glorious time. And we sh- wish you the very best in your life. Uh, isn't it great to have those who are new in Christ that we can encourage and be encouraged by? Amen? We're looking forward to that. I'm grateful to be back here at White Oak. Sharon and Cassie, of course, are with me. We have more children, but uh, they're grown up and gone away now. The boys are either through school and out and married, or uh, they're still in college. Can you hear it? All right. Thank you. We don't have to worry about these in the Pacific, so I'm not, I'm not too accustomed to them. Thank you up there, Martin. It's something else. We don't have one standing up in a balcony like that either. It, maybe in a coconut tree or something, but. <laughs> but it is a, a great joy to be here tonight with Sharon, my wife, and, and Cassie, our daughter who is now 12 years old. Uh, we just, on Friday night, uh, were at one of our son's wedding. Aaron, uh, the second-born son, got married, a faithful Christian woman, uh, over in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And we had guests with us until about noon. And then we uh, came to Atlanta and was there this morning in uh, Forest Park, our overseeing uh, supporting congregation, and now here with you all. It's a great joy, especially, to see some of you that we've not seen in a long time. Uh, I know that you all realize, most of you do, that for a number of years, uh, there's been some that we've been very close to in the work. One, Brother Joe Weir, sitting here tonight. I'm so very grateful to see Brother Joe again. And uh, for a great number of years, he and Marty both uh, encouraged us in the work, and uh, not far from him is Sister Joanne. She and Brother Ted Truett for many years had us in their homes. And I mention that because of this reason. People will often ask Sharon and I about being on the mission field for as long as we have, since 89. And I tell them there's a lot of things that we can account that to. First, God has blessed us abundantly in every way. But along the way, there have been people in our lives who have encouraged us with their words and opened their arms up, had us in their home, and sat beside us in the difficult times when we were in between reporting trips and offered us a place to sleep after many miles on the highway. And both of these know that I like to get up early and get moving as quick as we can. That's part of the reason why we have been on the field for as long as we have. God has provided in every way, and especially through good brethren like Brother Joe and Sister Joanne, and of course their spouses who have gone on to their reward. I want to thank the congregation here at White Oak for your many years of encouragement in the work. We are so excited about what God is doing in the work, and it's a wonderful time to be back with you to report on the things that He is enabling. And to God be the glory in all things. Amen? 
You and I are given to sow the seed of the kingdom. We're given to teach the word of God, to encourage others and to water that word, and then to see God give an increase. And one of the things that I have learned certainly over the years is that God will indeed give an increase when we sow the seed of the kingdom faithfully. We don't have to worry about that. We just need to do that work and do it regularly, just like you have done right here. And we've seen that fruit come forward in Zachary's obedience to the gospel tonight. One of the things I like to mention is this, and there are so many different ways that we can do the work. Even the Bible itself records different people at different times with the same message proclaiming it, but in different ways. Methodology is not something that we've gotten lost with uh, over in the Pacific. We just simply teach and preach the gospel. But as we go to the pages of the Bible, there are some things that we can see of particular interest when we talk about mission work. The Apostle Paul is a great example of a man who, no doubt, was a faithful gospel preacher. And he left for us a model for foreign missions uh, in the book of Acts and other places that truly is second to none. Many times we do not see this model being used in mission work. And because of that reason, sometimes mission efforts aren't successful. We truly believe that the only leg that we have to stand on in the work is the Bible itself. Brethren, you know, we say that, but I'll tell you, when, when, you're, when you're in a foreign country, you're on borrowed time there, uh, you can be sent out at any time, there's disease upon you and every other uh, hardship that you can imagine, and you're not protected from that by man. But when you see all of those things, you realize that ultimately the only thing that you have to stand on is God and His blessings. But that's enough, isn't it? The Lord sees us through every difficulty of this life. We are His children, and He certainly provides for us. I see four things that Paul did that made a difference in mission work. I see those four things being practiced today. The first thing I want to mention to you, very simply, is this. The first thing that any missionary needs to be doing is teaching the gospel. Now, you might say, well, of course that's what they should be doing. But sometimes that might be easier said than done. There is no shortcut or end around in this tried and true method, simply preaching and teaching the gospel. When the Apostle Paul went city to city, when he went village to village, he preached before he did anything else. Many times people will say to us, well, what do you do when you get into a country? What's the first thing that you do? Well, we have to clear immigration, and once we do that, it's from that point forward that we're trying our very best to preach and teach. Everybody is a prospect. Everybody. And you know that same mentality, truly, we can use that right here in the United States. It's a mentality that we see in the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul, we read in the book of Acts chapter 13 and verse 5 and other passages that teach us that this man, he went about preaching and teaching the Word of God. I believe that we need more teaching and we need less touring in missions. And I don't mean that in an ugly way, but sometimes I am afraid that mission work has gotten a reputation of being maybe a vacation or a tour. And certainly that's not what we in the Lord's Church want to do. I will say this, it's exciting. 
It's wonderful to go into different countries. And it's not a vacation, but it is one of the best works that you and I can do together. Not all can go, some can send, but together that model works. The Apostle Paul was found teaching and preaching the Word of God. Secondly, we need to be about training other people to teach. This is vital. Any missionary that comes to you, we should always ask them what he or what they are doing in an effort to teach other people, to train other people to teach. The method that we follow is very simple. We call it an indigenous method. There is no U.S. support lines into the local congregations. Why is that? Well, it's because they can support their own work. Now, they have difficulty in doing that. And they might not be able to build a building like this, but this building wouldn't be practical for them. But they can do things for themselves when they're given that opportunity. We teach and we train and we encourage and we stand by them. We weep with them. We rejoice with them. And yes, when they come to something, that an obstacle that they can't get over, then certainly we're there to help our brothers and sisters in the faith. But one of the most vital things that you and I or anyone can do is to be able to train others uh, to teach. And we must be about that. We don't just teach people, but rather we teach them to teach others. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 teaches us that. So as soon as a new convert comes up out of the water, like for example Zachary, well, we would spend time with that as you would, encouraging them and edifying them and building them up so that they would have the ability to go and to teach other people. I believe we're missing a major force in evangelism when we fail to do this very simple thing. We, we sometimes inadvertently ignore the impact of a new Christian. They're encouraged about the gospel they've just obeyed, and they're likely to share it with other people. We need to have them to sit in on studies with us, and we try to do that wherever possible. I remember the first time that I was taught and obeyed the gospel. It was just a few days after that in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I had gone to a garage sale on Saturday morning, early. And a man uh, told me, you know, my, I was really excited telling him about what I'd done. I'd just become a Christian. And he said, you know, my wife and I have been looking for a place to go to services. And I thought, oh my goodness, here it is, my first contact. And I, I wrote the man's name down and his information. And I said, I'm going to get back with you. And the next day on Sunday, I went to services and Brother Roy Donovan was one of the ministers on staff there. He was a personal evangelist. And I went up to Roy, much taller than me, and I reached inside my coat pocket and I pulled out that piece of paper and I said, Roy, you're not going to believe what happened. And I began to tell him the story of how I'd met a man on Saturday morning, just the day before, and that man wanted to come to services. He wanted to have Bible study. And I began to hand that piece of paper over to Roy. And Roy just slowly took that piece of paper into his hand as I was talking. And while I was talking, he slowly handed it back to me again. And he said, Brother Randy, that is exciting. And he said, I tell you what, I'll be glad to go and see him he said, how about you go back and talk to him first, and I'll come and give you a hand. And I said, well, I, I guess I could do that. You see, Roy was teaching me to teach others. 
And brethren, that is a good example from the Apostle Paul. Third, we need to trust those who have been trained to teach others. We need to have a level of trust in them that they can do the work. Congregations of the churches of Christ, of course, are autonomous. We do not rule over one another. Once a congregation is established, we go about the good work of encouraging them to mature and to develop. That is so vital. If you've got a small congregation, like you'll see some of these are small and some are larger, and you've only got about, say, five men who are in the leadership capability, and you pull two of them out and you send them overseas to train them, well, you've lost a majority of your leadership, or a large part of it, rather. So that's not the model that we choose. We do choose to train and teach them to mature and to develop right there in their home congregation. We read about the same such thing in Acts chapter 14 and verse 21 through verse 23. And the apostles were involved in this as well. We do not, it is not our desire, and what you would see in the next few minutes, our desire is not to create a situation of dependency. Brother Joe has been out on the field with us. He will tell you that we strive, we really strive to help these brethren to grow up in the Lord. But we do not want them to be dependent upon another congregation. This congregation is not dependent in that way. You are involved in good works. You support good works. Overseas missions work can do the same thing. The fourth and last thing I want to encourage us all in, and I believe you'll see this, is that we do need to turn those trained people loose and let them get out and go and teach others. You know, this is vitally important. Sometimes I think when we're involved in training, I might be a little skeptical and I might wonder, well, is he or she really ready to go? But you know, I think back to the time that I became a Christian. It was in the mid-80s. Sheridan and I had studied together. We obeyed the gospel. And the lady that had opened up the studies with us, the first one that met us that was a member of the church, she began to talk to Sharon about the Bible, and I overheard that conversation and became interested. She was very smart. She got some of the elders to come over and sit with us and study. She and her husband had studies with us. And that continued on for several weeks, in fact, a few months. And then we obeyed the gospel. I remember that day. And she continued to have studies in her home. She would ask us to come over and she would have a small meal prepared for us and we would have food and then she and Joe would sit down and teach us further. And then I remember a few weeks after that on a Wednesday night, I walked up to her in the aisle after the service and I said, Kathy, are we going to see you and Joe tomorrow night for Bible study? And she said, no, no, I'm sorry. And I said, are you and Joe going to be out of town or you're going to be gone or you're going to be busy? And she said, no, no, we're going to be in town. But she said, you know, Brother Randy, it's time now for you all to go and teach somebody else. Kathy Rosales and her husband Joe did the best thing that could be done for Sharon and I when they encouraged us, when they help to teach us and to train us and then turn us loose so that we could go and teach other people. Just imagine, brethren, 
when the Apostle Paul left Antioch to go to Cyprus, that he had remained there for the rest of his life? What if he had never gone anywhere else? Just think of all the opportunities that would have been missed. Would there have been a congregation at Ephesus? Would there have been one at Corinth? Or how about the congregation at Galatia or Thessalonica? There's nothing wrong with revisiting congregations, but we also need to remember this, that when we teach people and we train them up, we have to turn them loose to go and to do that good work. These are some principles, four very simple principles that we try to follow as we labor in the Pacific. I'd like to now share some things with you that I hope will encourage you about the work that you're involved in helping us to do. And in this small report, I want to say to you that it's really focused about one thing, and that's getting the gospel to people. That's one of the biggest challenges that we have in this area of the world. It's a very remote area. It's separated by hundreds and thousands of miles of water. You'll go to one island, and there's islands all along the way. But you can't just walk there. You've got to get there, and it's difficult. So logistics enters in to getting the gospel into these nations. I want to begin by just pointing out this gentleman right here that we're coming up out of this mud hole with was he was relocated. He was on the island of Guadalcanal up in the interior and a flood hit, wiped out their entire village, relocated to an area just outside of an area where the church meets that was owned by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church had extended their hand. They had a piece of property and they said, whoever's been displaced because of flood can come and just camp out here. And that's what he and many other people were doing. When I came to the village where the church meets and we begin to teach, this man came to Bible lessons. To make a long story short, he and others were quite concerned if they studied the Bible that they might not be allowed to live. But this man, he stood up and said, it's not worth losing my soul over. I want to become a Christian. I'm willing to take the risk. I know the Lord will take care of me. He set that example and was baptized that day and has since led other people to do the very same thing. Getting the gospel into the Pacific is what this is all about. We do this from our home base in American Samoa. It's a U.S. territory comprised of about 95% Samoan people. Now, it's just Sharon and Cassie and I. Of course, all five of our children were born and raised there in American Samoa. And as I said earlier, the boys are out um, in other areas now, faithful Christians, and two of them married down to faithful Christian women. It takes faithful co-workers, uh, not only those who go, but those who are back here, doing different things in the work, praying for the work, helping in different ways in the work, and of course those that will come come out onto the field and join us. We report on the work. We try to come regularly back to congregations as often as we can. We also send out updates by email, and we are now returning back to our printed copy of our newsletter entitled Sunlight in the Pacific. We're looking forward to that. Instead of mailing it to individual homes, we're going to just simply mail a packet to each congregation. So I want to encourage you to be looking for that, and the office here will get that and you'd be able to have a copy of it. We're happy to send it out by email as well. Here's another item that we have. It comes by email, and it's entitled, Where in the World Has the Gospel Gone? It's a very simple uh, single email, 
And it asks that question, then it gives an answer. For example, in this one it says, in Guadalcanal, the Solomon Islands. And when you click on that link that says here, it'll take you out to Google Earth and it'll come right down on that village in Google Earth where the gospel has been taken. It's quite an interesting little simple thing, but it says just that. Reaching remote homes is really what the work is about. It is part logistics, but more than that, it's getting the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel. These are the countries that we work in. The five that are listed there, American Samoa, the Republic of Kiribati, the Solomon Islands, French Polynesia, and Vanuatu. Now, each of these nations, they have uh, multiple islands. Uh, American Samoa only has seven islands, but then the Solomon Islands has over 350 islands. Some of the countries have over a thousand islands. So it's, it's a lot more than just one, one island in one country. So you have the country, you always have the island, and then you're going to have the cities and then the villages, just like that. Sort of like our states and our counties and the cities in that fashion. But these are the work areas, and of course there's Pacific Broadcast, which we'll tell you more about in just a moment. Uh, the region, as you can see, is basically from the United States over to Asia, everything in between. There's uh, 30-something thousand islands in that region, and they're all over the place, scattered out. We're based basically right in the middle of that map in American Samoa. Now, that's, that is a U.S. territory. It's the areas that the, uh, that the elders that oversee our work at Forest Park chose over 25 years ago to base this. They wanted a U.S. territory because uh, in a U.S. territory, you don't have to have a visa if you're an American citizen to get in there. If you have a U.S. passport, you can stay there the rest of your life. They had had experience in overseeing missionaries in foreign countries. They had struggled at times with missionaries who were sent away and weren't given renewed visas. And so as they began to look around the Pacific Rim area, they said, what's the best place to locate a missionary? American Samoa is what they came up with. And in July of 1989, Sharon and I moved there. There are three congregations in the country. The largest one is the New Uli Church of Christ with 100, about 125 members. The work there is very simple. It's a matter of getting out, going house to house, preaching the gospel, having personal studies. We do anything that we can. Printed materials works very good. People in that area of the world still read, and they will read what you give them. Uh, Brother Omeka, the gentleman in the middle there, he is uh, one of the evangelists in the country, and he's got his daughter out on the end, and the couple standing on either side of him, they just made their first trip to the Pacific, uh, back in the month of uh, June, it was, Sharon, isn't that right? Late May, early June. Now, the brother there, he's a, you can tell he's not a spring chicken. In fact, he he's 88 years old, and he has a reasonable measure of good health. And you might be asking, well, what in the world is he going to do over there? The answer to that is plenty, plenty. This gentleman, just like yourself, is a faithful Christian, has served for many years. He's not a pulpit preacher. He is a man who has an interest in serving in missions, teaching, encouraging, doing, and helping. His wife is a very same way. When a man of that age walks on the field in the Pacific, 
There are more doors open than we can possibly ever go through. Age is greatly respected in that area of the world. And just to have a man like that at your side, a man that has, or a woman that has gray hair or, or no hair at all, is a great blessing because people do have an awesome respect for age. So in American Samoa, uh, this is our base country. You'll find uh, classes and, and things taking place just like you would here. Uh, sometimes things are organized a little bit differently. Uh, the congregations, the three congregations are different sizes. They all come together for different works. These are Polynesian people, and they're generally pretty large people. We move to the next uh, country, the Republic of Kiribati. Now, in that country, when the letters T-I are on the end of the word, it's pronounced S. So listen to how we pronounce that, Kiribati. And when I always pronounce that, they'll go, Kiribati. And I'll say, no, Kiribati, because the T-I is pronounced S. This is a country with 33 islands. The largest is Christmas Island. It actually is a, the largest coral atoll. The congregation that meets there is indigenous, self-supporting. Uh, they are uh, at the head of their leadership, of course, are local men. Then we move from there into the Solomon Islands. This is a great nation full of many people. It's got well over a half a million people in it, scattered over a lot of islands. The main island is Guadalcanal. That's where a fierce battle, that whole nation, fierce battle during World War II was fought. The attitude toward American people there is one of the best that we've ever seen. They have a rich history and they well remember Americans. They have a great respect for them because they were dealing with the tyranny of the Japanese army years ago. And the American soldiers came and freed them from that. That left a huge open door, a vacuum. But I might say that we were a little late getting in the door. The church wasn't there immediately after the war. But we began going there several years ago. Already, there's four congregations in the country. They're all self-supporting. The one in the capital city has appointed elders. They've reconstructed their meeting area three times now and outgrown it now. This is indigenous work at its best. Their building is off to the right. It flows outside under that tarp. And we're hopeful to see the church end up getting a new facility before too long. This gentleman's name is Benjamin. We came in from an outer island. He was waiting on us in the lobby of where we were staying. And the, <clears throat> the lady at the front desk said, Mr. English, uh, there's a man that has come for a Bible study. I went over and sat down next to Benjamin. And uh, very shortly, with a tear in his eye, he said, uh, Mr. English, I'm wanting to study the Bible. My life is a mess. And I don't know if God will even accept me. Within a week, that gentleman had obeyed the gospel. He is one of the greatest encouragements to the church <laughs> that, I, that I know of. He's there all the time. He has good words, encouraging words. He's a servant. He just typifies people who have a genuine interest in the Bible. People don't play around with God's Word in this area of the world because they're afraid to. You give them a tract, they'll read it. They won't throw it down on the ground. They're afraid to throw it down on the ground. And so that level of interest doesn't equate to everybody obeying the gospel, but what it does, it will cover your life up with the work of the Lord. 
There is not enough hours and not enough people unless we are strict with the New Testament pattern of evangelizing to get the job done. What's the pattern? The New Testament church is predicated upon every member having a part. We all have different parts, and that's okay. But we all must be doing something to help people to understand and to hear and to learn and obey the gospel. French Polynesia is an entirely different area. This area, uh, it, it, in some ways, it's been a heavy burden on us. 100% French speaking. The French still rule this territory of 118 islands. And they're strict with their territories. The people have their indigenous language, like Tahitian or the Marquesian language, but they speak French first and foremost. But nonetheless, people here in the country, too, are eager to hear the truth of God's Word. This gentleman was brought to us by another man that we knew. He's a denominational pastor. He asked us to come in. He had several questions. We answered him, and he said, okay, good day. It's like, okay, are we, are we finished? I guess we were. He said, good day. He called back later and said, I would like to study the Bible some more. And we went to his home and sat down and studied. Actually, we went to his, uh, the, the parish where he labored, and we sat down with him and studied and studied and studied. He's not obeyed the gospel yet, but he brought another one to us to study the Bible. You know, <clears throat> I think sometimes we get all twisted up in trying to decide if someone's going to obey the gospel or not when we ought to just be simply sowing the seed. Don't worry about the plant growing. God will take care of that. We're seed sowers, not plant growers. Amen? That's our work. I don't want us to not feel the burden of lost people, but sometimes we overburden ourselves wondering if they're ever going to obey the gospel. Just keep loving them and teaching them the truth of God's Word. Vanuatu. Uh, years ago, does anybody know what this country used to be called before it got its independence? New what? Begins with an H. New Hebrides. That's back a number of years ago before they gained their independence from the Commonwealth. This is a Melanesian nation of over 70 islands. We worked there for a number of years. Brother Joe Weir has set foot in that country. He's worked with me in the cities and in the villages. We, uh, we had wonderful opportunities teaching, preaching, baptizing, helping to mature the church there. And then we had the blessing of three missionaries moving there and locating for a 10-year period. They just recently, or in the past two years, two of them have left. And so my elders, together with ourselves, made a decision to begin returning to the work in Vanuatu. We did that last April, following a huge cyclone that they had, which literally destroyed most of the main island. It was the largest one ever recorded in the Pacific Rim. And it hit just like they normally do. It came and hit them, and then after the eye passed over, it came back and got them again. And it just wrecked a lot of the villages. The city it wasn't as bad on, except for the boats surrounding uh, the water's edge. But the villages, it just tore them up everywhere. This is one of the churches that meet outside the city about uh, 45 minutes. And it, of course, wreaked a lot of havoc on that building as well. This is the congregation. Uh, there are probably about 40 people, maybe 45 people, an indigenous self-supporting church. And they got to the business of repairing their buildings. Some of the congregations are located in the outer islands. Now don't let this keep you from coming next year because I know you're going to come and help us in the work 
That would be the way we would get to the outer island. That's not a very big boat. But what that boat does, it represents freedom in a schedule. You can catch a big boat, but you're going to stay for one day or for a month or two. So this is why we'll get a small boat like that and just tack the coast as far as we can, then cut out and go to the island that we're after. That particular place right there, we're going to Imau Island. It's not very far away. But the thing is, you do get out on the open sea. Typically, we'll have six to ten people on a boat with our gear. And when we were headed in April to go to Imau, you could see the island. The people, that was 30 days after the cyclone, Pam, struck. Just Google that up. It struck, I think it was on the 13th of March, on a Friday. 30 days later, we landed in the country. At that time, the brethren and other people in the country had had one serving of help from the government. One time. They had a certain amount of food given to them. One time in 30 days. The Pacific Islanders are very humble people. They don't ask for much. For the first time in my life, in 26 year, 27 years in the Pacific, I actually saw people that were hungry. Humble people that were hungry. We got on that boat and went to Mount Island. They knew why we were going. We were going to check on them and to teach and to preach and to help them with some relief. But in the middle of the journey, the driver of the boat, he asked, Mr. English, please, can we stop? There's a school of tuna that we're about to cross. He handed everybody, we said certainly, he handed everybody a line, a hook, and we started hooking them and flipping them back in the boat. They were hungry. And they landed on Mount Island with a boat full of fish that day. I remember children smaller than this young girl running up to the boat and seeing the fish in it and beginning to pull those fish out of there. We went, got out of the boat, and went into the center of the village. Within about an hour or so, those fish were laying on a plate. They had cooked them up. But before they would touch them, they offered them to us to eat. And they were hungry. The Pacific Islanders are humble people. They're not a pushover, though, to obey the gospel because their culture is very heavy and it's deep. The people in Vanuatu, I'm happy to say, have recovered well from the cyclone. They've had the assistance of others. Of course, there were supplies available back in the main city. And I want you to know, especially it's important to me that Wado knows, that the way that we believe that you can do this kind of relief work is very simple. We believe that it's proper to do just what Jesus did. He went about preaching and teaching and healing the sick. Now, we can't heal the sick as he did, but we can help them with some of their physical ailments. But you don't want to leave out the preaching and teaching. You and I miss the greatest opportunity of our life when we're benevolent towards someone if we don't help them with the spiritual side. And of course, that person always has that choice. I can say that doing the work like this brought many opportunities to teach. And some of the most exciting conversions that we've seen in a long, long time. This tree, I took a picture of it because it had previously been hit by a cyclone uh, just a few years earlier. Knocked down and started regrowing from what was knocked down. It just typifies how well the Lord helps to bring things back. There wasn't a seed left in the country when we got in there and 30 days later. We wanted to go in and just do an entry-level help to these people. What would that mean? Well, you know, the, the short-term needs, food, 
Give them things that they can plant and work and get those gardens back up. The Nevanamatu people, they really work gardens. They call them plantations. But they really work on those and depend on them. There wasn't any seeds anywhere. We went to a store one day where we had heard they'd had some. They said, we're so sorry, we've sold all of them. And as we were leaving that store in Port Vila, Vanuatu, one of the ladies yelled out, which is untypical in the island custom. They can't really yell across people. <laughs> but she yelled out, and I turned around, and she said, Mr. English, come, there's just a truck that pulled up out back. It's from the airport in New Zealand. It's loaded down with seeds. We bought every seed that we could buy. This congregation and others helped us to buy those seeds, and we took those seeds, and the ideology there was we want to help everybody, but we're going to start with the brethren. Do good to all men, Galatians 6 and verse 10, especially those of the household of faith. And the idea was if we could help people, the brethren, they would go and help others. We took those seeds and got some of those inexpensive, uh, they look like a pitchfork to me, those are made in China, and they turned those gardens up and started getting them replanted. Now that's 30 days after, 30 days after. And the brethren put them to work. Well, we went back in July. And here's what we saw on the ground in July. That plus more. The first thing they did was greet us with some lettuce. When we went to the village, we had a salad. But when we went to the gardens out here, we were amazed to see what was growing from those seeds. But what really amazed us is standing right there in the background with the towel around his neck. This is Chief Spedley. He's in his early 60s. He's a chief at Powell Village, a good man. His dad's name was Obed. Now, Brother Joe would have met Obed. That was a number of years ago. Obed was in his 80s, a faithful member of the church. But Spedley would never have any part of the church. Who knows what you know a man has to come to before he will listen. Chief Spedley began to listen. And he came to our Bible studies every day. Remember, we were doing the relief work, but we were having the Bible studies. And he sat at the back, and I saw him, after a sermon, stand up and go outside. Now, that in the Pacific Islands wouldn't happen. They'd count it as being rude or something. And after my sermon, I went on out and sat outside with him. And I looked at him, and he had a big tear in his eye, and he said, you know, for many years, my dad tried to get me, my father tried to get me, to listen to the Word of God. And I never did. And he said, I'm not going to do that anymore. I want to become a Christian. I'm not a saved man. Chief Spedley obeyed the gospel on that day. When we came back, he was so encouraged to tell us, look at the increase that God has given. And he pointed to all of those vegetables growing. And then he pointed to himself. And we said, we couldn't agree more. There's the increase that God has given. And so you see, brethren, the Lord provides a way that we can do His work where there's a balance in it. This was a lesson that was being taught when Chief Spedley stood up and he went outside with a tear in his eyes. What is brotherly love? It's a very simple lesson that teaches from the Bible what is brotherly love. And so we went down to the water with him and one of our other brothers who's 85, 85 years old, Brother Eddie Karras baptized him into Christ, just like we saw Zachary baptized, be baptized just a few minutes ago. He was a happy man. 
And uh, we've seen him since then. We went back and returned in October, then again in January. We were working over there with some of our elders as well. Evangelism is an important thing no matter where you go. It's something that must be done regularly. It doesn't need to be an event. I think it really, we're taught in the Bible, it should be a lifestyle. We should just be about teaching. So evangelism is very important. It's one of the three things that we strive to do. Evangelism, edification, and equipping. In these areas, people, because they are willing to listen, I think it's really a matter of trying to schedule your hours and your days and your weeks that you're going to be there. The most useful resource. And and not doing something that supplants the brethren doing something. You don't want to take away the work that they're perfectly willing to do. Typically, we go out with teams anywhere from maybe 8 to 20 to 22 people, and we divide up into groups and go out house to house, uh, from village to village, and teach. Sometimes we will also do something like a medical missions clinic in conjunction with teaching. These clinics offer people the ability to sit down and have their vitals taken and to see a doctor and to also study the Bible. They're free to do that. Many do, most do, and some even end up obeying the gospel. Recently at Christmas Island, we had uh, three men, older men in fact, to come to obedience of the gospel. Great encouragement to the church. Now in their country, that man, he's 72. He's considered to be very old. Very old. Because they just simply don't live to that age in Kiribati. The average life expectancy of a man in Kiribati is 57. I turned 57 in August. And recently they, they, they referred to me respectfully as an old man. That's a respectful term in their country, not, not a derogatory. I thought, gee, I must be getting old, okay. In Christmas Island, the church there is, of course, about working in the Lord's work and evangelism, but there's also edification. You would know that it's so important for us after we obey the gospel to be edified through the word of God, to be built up, to be made stronger. And so edification must be a regular part of the congregation's teachings effort, both in the children all the way up through the adults so that they can grow stronger. Can you tell which one of those my little girl there? She was a little bit younger there, and of course among the e people. Equipping is the third thing. You've got to be able to train people to do the work of God. We do that in several ways. We do that face-to-face. We do that by correspondence. We have uh, the Pacific Islands Bible College, which is a Bible college that goes to them rather than them coming to the Bible college, and it provides that level of teaching that is important. We're reaching out in another way through Pacific Broadcast. It's a radio network that we started a little over 10 years ago. God has blessed it abundantly now to grow to eight radio stations. This is owned and operated by the church. These are all non-commercial educational licensed station, and they're teaching 24 hours a day. We're now building out, just finished a webcast, an IT center, so that we can push all those stations out to the web. People do listen to radio through the internet in that area of the world, as well as other ways. And we're working now, continuing our work on a high-frequency shortwave facility in the northern state, in the northern part of the state of Arkansas. And so we're seeing wonderful progress being made. We actually have two facilities, one in American Samoa and then one in northern Arkansas at Gaither Mountain. The Pacific Broadcast Network is simply a tool. It's designed to help to push the Word of God out further, 
to teach people. It's teaching right now. We could tune in on it on your cell phone, go inside our studios, and you would hear those broadcasts running. Shortly, you'll be able to tune in on it on your computer. We use different sources of content uh, for those programs. And, of course, we do our own production work as well. We do those things at American Samoa and back in the U.S. as well. A large part of the content would come from congregations. Their preacher uh, preaching on Sundays and other times and other people in the congregation who are capable of doing Bible lessons. And, of course, we have local content that's produced in these countries as well, in their own local languages. Uh, the broadcast is done uh, primarily in English because English carries in those countries. And so it's a wonderful tool for us to reach out to people through these FM radio, uh, through this FM radio network, and soon in a shortwave. And the only difference is a shortwave, of course, is capable of going over the long haul. We do operate primarily from Tutuila Island. That's the island that we're based on right there. It's a volcanic island. You can see it's real rugged. A lot of mountains there, hardly any flatland. The only flatland in the whole country is, uh, is on the bottom half of that uh, where it dips down, and you'll see a long line. That's actually the runway. Everything else, of course, is very mountainous. Uh, they're big mountains. Our radio facility there is constructed in a way that will uh, stand up in the cyclones. We have some fierce cyclones in the Pacific. So whatever you build, you've got to build it to withstand that plus the termites. I've never seen anything like it in my life. When we first moved there in 1989, we rented a small house that was made of cedar. Well, you know, I was taught, you got something cedar, the bugs won't eat it. And I was underneath that house one day. Actually, I was in the house laying on the floor. Sharon was very pregnant. And we were just laying down, and I happened to have my head on the floor. And I heard this. I thought, what is that? And I pulled a tile up, and termites were eating the floor. When we went underneath it, they were eating those solid cedar beams. So when you build there, you've got to build out of cement, or the termites will eat it down, or the cyclones will blow it down. And so we build all of our own facilities. It's volunteer labor for the most part. Members of the church uh, will come out and join us in the work of teaching, and we'll have projects that we can work on for the broadcast as well. Pacific Broadcast Network, we have to keep it in perspective. It is a tool, and that's, that's what it's for. It's like a Bible track. You know, it won't replace really you or I being face-to-face -face with someone, but it'll do a good job of helping to teach people the truth 24 hours a day. So we're thankful for this blessing that God has given us. Uh, the church does all of the work with this. Men and women, just like yourselves, both overseas in American Samoa, our facility there, as well as in northern Arkansas, at an area called Gaither Mountain. And we use this to reach out to people in these remote areas of the world. As I mentioned earlier, we have eight stations. Two of those eight stations have just been launched uh, in the past year in America. And one of those two stations is our format for the Churches of Christ Community Radio. That's a, that's a wonderful thing that we're very excited about. You know, when you run a radio Bible program in an area, you'll get certain results. If you own the station and operate it 24 hours a day, there's where you'll get the results. And so a good, strong, consistent effort had taught us that we can, we can get the small percentages of people. You don't listen to the radio all the time, and I don't either, but I do listen to it sometime. 
And that's what we're after. The Churches of Christ Community Radio is an effort to take the gospel into these cities, out through the Pacific, even in remote areas, as well as our cities in America. And so we did launch that station not long ago. I visited with this man, by the way, in Malaita. He was listening to a radio program, and they asked me to come to his home. They were excited to share with me that he had a radio. And I walked in and sat down. He tuned it up, and we listened to a program on why we should keep the Sabbath day. It was a Seventh-day Adventist church's radio station. That really affected me. And I remember the following team meeting with my elders in Atlanta. We began to meet and discuss how we could put a signal in that guy's radio in a very remote area of the world. The answer was high-frequency shortwave. Uh, the elders uh, eventually located a facility up on top of Gaither Mountain in northern Arkansas. And it's from that facility that we're building out our high-frequency uh, broadcast as well as our FM network. And so Gaither Mountain has been a beautiful tool to strengthen the work. It's helping us to reach people, more people with the gospel, which is an important part of the work. That's what the gospel was designed for. You've got to, and I don't mean radio, but the gospel, the very nature of it is something that must be broadcast. It must be put out there for people to hear. And so the Gaither Mountain facility in northern Arkansas is doing just that. One of the great things about this is much of the work that's done out here, uh, this 40-acre site, is done by members just like yourself. Younger and older groups of people will come and stay right at the facility for anywhere from a couple days to a week and help us with various different projects. And that's been a big blessing because it's enabled the work to move forward at a rapid rate, ahead of schedule in so many things, and get the goal of getting the gospel to other people. People work hard when they come up. Some people don't. Those two were taking a break that day. I caught them there. We fellowship in the evenings, have our meals together, knock off at about 4.30 or 5, and then back to it the next day. People say, well, what kind of work is there to do? And I tell them literally everything. There is uh, carpentry work. There's cooking work. There's cleaning work, there's technical work. It's just everything. Or can you drive a tractor or a bulldozer? It's everything under the sun. You think about a radio station and all the work that may be involved. Everything from cleaning those office spaces to putting the equipment in. Now multiply that times eight and you would have Pacific Broadcast. The 100% of the effort is being done by members of the church. One of the greatest things that we've seen to encourage a congregation is for the leadership to put together a group of volunteers. It might be five or six and take that eight, nine hour trip, drive up, spend a few days with us and work. You'll see firsthand what Pacific Broadcast is doing. It really doesn't cost anything to do that, but it's a tremendous help for us in the work. And it is the way that this wonderful facility has been built uh, stick by stick, board by board, our facilities are second to none now, and it's serving in a wonderful kind of way. We're excited about this good tool for the Lord. Everything that's put in the facility is sort of handmade by various different people from one end of the U.S. to the other. Our sound panels, for example, that are used in all the studios, if we bought those things commercially, they'd be several hundred dollars apiece. An elder in Florence, Alabama makes each one of them it costs $13. 
So you can see by people using their various different talents, young and old, we're able to get much done with the resources of God's people. It's not always about teaching and preaching. It's about what we can do to help the teaching and preaching to get to where it needs to be. And that's a good example of it in Pacific Broadcast. This facility is uh, already reached its infrastructure. We just, by the way, uh, a few days ago put up our first turbine, which is a 5K. Why would we do that? Just simply to provide power. We're up on a high mountaintop, and it's feasible for us to do that. We uh, feed that power back to the grid. We don't depend on that power, but we feed it back to the grid, and it offsets our usage there. Why? Should we do this? Why are we doing it? And the answer is just that, to reach remote homes with the gospel. If we can't do that, we really have no reason for Pacific Broadcast. But we do have a reason for it. And that is simply as a tool to reach out into the cities, into the villages, into the very remote areas. Not only that, brethren, but you want to go as well. We want to be able to physically walk into those areas where we're serving. Shortwave helps us to cover a large section of the earth uh, with a simple, not a simple transmission, but in one single transmission. You're able to get a lot of area covered. And so we're excited about that. The second thing, of course, is the FM network. Churches of Christ Community Radio is a broadcast that if you were listening, if you came across it, you would stop and listen. It's just that encouraging and edifying. And this is what we want to see to stretch out across cities in America. And we're doing that either through the congregation obtaining their license and we send our broadcast in, or we go in and obtain a license in an area and begin the broadcast. And so stay tuned, no pun intended, but be listening for more about that effort. It's a good effort to get the gospel out. There's practical issues. We put up a tower. Well, what do you do? Do you buy a used one or you get a new one? We usually go the used route because we can save a lot of money and stay on budget with things like that. Again, it's a, it's a volunteer organization effort, members of the Churches of Christ. And what are we after? We're after to see people learn the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures and obey the Lord and live faithful lives. Listen, I'm 57. It just seemed like yesterday when we left and went to the field. How many more days can I have? And what else is there to do? That's what we're supposed to be doing as God's people. We are to love Him. We are to lay our life down for Him. We are to take care of our families We are to love each other. We are to stand on the truth of God's word and help other people to go to heaven. We need to be doing all that we can. This woman obeyed the gospel here at a great sacrifice, but she obeyed the gospel. Others just like her, this gentleman here was released from prison so we could take him to baptize him. The warden was grateful to do it. This gentleman right here had a knee infection that killed him eight months later. But he obeyed the gospel before he died. There's others just like him. I want to say this and end right here. It's a verse found in Joshua 13 and verse 1 that I've shared with White Oak in the years past, but I'll share it again. Because it sort of falls on our plate. 
And the verse says this, Now Joshua was old and stricken in years, and the Lord said unto him, Thou art old and stricken in years, and there remaineth yet very much land to be possessed. Joshua 13 and verse 1. What that verse is saying to you and I, the Lord is affirming to Joshua, yes, he was old and he was afflicted. Everybody in this room, in some way, meets one of those two qualifications, or maybe both of them. We're afflicted with things without age. We may be young and afflicted. Some of us are physically older, but that certainly doesn't mean that we can't serve in a very, very effective way. And this verse brings it home to us in a loving way when the Lord says to Joshua, I know your disposition. I realize what you're battling with. And I want you to understand that there remaineth very much land to be possessed. God is telling Joshua, I have a work for you to do. I'll take it bumps, bruises, and all, as you are, but I have a work for you to do. Brethren, this congregation has faithfully served for many, many years. You've seen that the gospel has gone out to the four corners of the earth. And I want to commend you to continue to do that. In every way that you can, do that while there's still life in us to do that. We are God's people, and we've been blessed with that great opportunity. There remaineth very much land to be possessed. The Bible says that this is a day of salvation. Just think about that wonderful verse that the Apostle Paul wrote. This is the day of salvation. And if you think about it, as we can hear that verse from the Holy Scriptures, we've really been given a second chance. This is a day of salvation for you and I. If there's anyone here tonight that has a need, then we want to be able to do our best to try to meet that need. We have a song of invitation that's been chosen for us. We've already rejoiced over one, obeying the gospel. Maybe there's another. Or maybe there's one of us who our heavy burden with something in our life. And we simply need the prayers of this church. We are brethren, and we can shoulder those burdens together. We have a song of invitation that's been chosen for us. I want to invite us all to stand and sing.